We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. What's that coming over the hill? It's the automatic. I'm Richie Gallagher. <laughs> and I'm Peter Smith. And on today's show, we speak to a band responsible for one of the most played, one of the biggest standout songs of the noughties. It's the automatic. And here they are telling us a little bit about that monster hit. Um, so we're in bed and the windows are open. You just hear all the clubs checking out and then people singing it. And it's, it's a really bizarre, odd thing because I think you said it before, Rob, it's just that recognition. You don't recognise it immediately. It's like you know it's familiar, but you don't know why. It's so it just takes, when it's out of context, you just, it's really sort of surprising. Yeah, but then, it was shocking, really. Yeah. Just, just to hear a lone drunk voice in the night singing out <laughs> <Yeah>. monster. <laughs> That's when we realised this is doing things. <laughs> this has entered the public consciousness. We were joined by singer Robin Hawkins and drummer Ewan Griffiths, and they told us all about how that mega hit came about. Yeah, we also chatted to them about that big selling first album, not accepted anywhere, the ups and downs of recording their follow-up in LA, a lineup change, and how a release date mix-up denied them another top 10 smash hit. Plus, the boys tell us why next year, 15 years after the release of Monster, could be the perfect time for them to get back on stage. Yeah, we were trying to draw it out of them, weren't we? We were trying to encourage them back onto the uh, back onto the stage. Remember, you can check out our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages. Just search for Boys in the Band Pod for more Naughty's nostalgia. You can rate and review our podcast as well. Don't forget to do that. But for now, sit back and enjoy as we bring you the story of the automatic. We're delighted to be joined this week by two members of The Automatic, singer, bass player, and sometimes flute player, Robin Hawkins. Rob, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Excellent. And drummer, Ewan Griffiths. How are you doing, Ewan? Uh, awesome. Yeah, good, thanks. Great stuff. Good, good, Great to have you on the show, guys. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. Now, we kick off these podcasts with what we call the sound check. So it's three quick-fire questions to get us warmed up and get us going. So the first question, as we're chatting over Skype today, where in the world are you? Ewan, do you want to kick us off? Uh, I'm at home in my... I suppose you could call it a study, office, junk room. <laughs> uh, just the natural progression of that drawer you have in the kitchen, I think. <laughs> it's just full of your stuff that you don't know what to do with. Um, but, yeah, I'm down in South Wales, uh, near Cowbridge, where, where where we're from, really. So, yeah, that's where I am at the moment. Cool. Rob, where are you, mate? I'm in my uh, extended kitchen drawer, which is um, <laughs> full of musical instruments, uh, which are all out of shot, actually. But um, uh, that's in Bristol. So I didn't get very much further, <laughs> just across the bridge. Lovely stuff. And what about um, second question in in the in the sound check? Is all about bands that you're loving right now. So Rob, are there any bands that stand out at you at the moment? Uh, I've been listening to Mariachi El Bronx a lot at the moment. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, departure into Mariachi music. So <laughs> why not? Just it's just relentlessly fun and quite summery. Although the lyrics are pretty grim. But if you ignore those, really. <laughs> And how about you, Ewan? Um, I've been listening to uh, Tom Mish, uh, oh, yeah. guitarist. Um, it's been pretty cool. Just kind of quite laid back. I don't want to listen to anything too frenetic at the moment. Stuck inside. <laughs> Go a bit off the walls. So, yeah, that kind of just like, um, yeah, that's kind of it, really. I'm kind of at a point where I've been asking people, what can I listen to? 
so I'm getting a bit stuck. So if anyone has recommendations, I'm all ears. Yes, yeah, Tom, Tom is touch. great. Yeah. Um, and last question, Sanchez guys. Uh, it's obviously been a while now, but what was the best gig you've been to in the past twelve months? Mm. <laughs> um, what's the gig scene like in Cowbridge you <laughs> limited just um i've got a, a two-year-old daughter so gig going has been pretty limited for about the last two years i think the last gig i, I saw was robert plant in bristol and oh. that was pretty awesome uh yeah he's got a really good band and yeah i really enjoyed that actually i sat next to this sort of strange 70 year old guy who was going for it big time <laughs> in his seat quite violently <laughs> that's good though it's good gig uh, that's the last one I went to. Yeah, that's about over a year ago now, which isn't great. <laughs> How about you, Rob? Um, the last one that comes to mind was I saw the Mysterines in the Louisiana in Bristol, um, and that was that was great. That was fantastic. Uh, they did look like they were about to break up on stage for most of the gig, <laughs> but it was really good. Um, they, I've seen them a couple of times now, and they're, they're fantastic. I'm surprised they haven't kind of got more traction than they have. Cool. Well, let's let's get into the meat of it then, guys, and rewind the clock. But we can go right back to the beginning because uh, you and you were in Cowbridge, so and that's where it yeah. all started for the band, right? So, tell us about it. It's primary school mates, is that right? And then come through to form a band when you're teenagers. Is that is that how it went? Pretty uh, much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, slightly more. T- I suppose we were, we were we were friends before we were anything else, and we decided to 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 be. Um, Oh, we had a go at comedy, <laughs> uh, Ill, slightly ill-fated. Um, and then w- when we got into our teens and music started, be- well, it was, it was even pre-teens, I think. It was like we were like 11 or 12. And uh, music started becoming more important to us. That's when we decided to be a band without any ability to play any of the required instruments or sing or write songs. Uh- <laughs> yeah, we kind of the idea of being a band came before any of us had. I think Frost could play guitar, yeah. and that was about it. Everyone else was like, "What do you want to do then?" And then we kind of sort of found our way through the years, didn't we? Wasn't Beg, Beg borrowed and stole equipment. Well, we didn't steal anything. We were good boys. Beg and borrowed. <laughs> <laughs> but there was um, there was obviously plenty of Welsh bands around as well to be inspired by. Obviously, the the Manics and the Super Furry Animals and Stereophonics were about. But then also, you know, when you did sort of start start uh, start gigging and stuff, you know, people like Funeral for a Friend and Bullet for My Valentine, they were coming around. So how did you know the bands that were already there and those that were coming up with you uh, inspire and help you along the path? So the Manics, I've got a memory of them winning the Brit Award over, I think they beat Oasis with um, Everything Must Go. They won a Brit. And that was kind of the first time I think a Welsh band really was really successful that was just sort of... Um, you felt like they were just down, well, you say relatively quite, relatively close by, just down the road. And that was kind of one of those things that made it seem, oh, it's not this distant achieve, distant thing to aspire to, that only people from London or, like, I don't know, America, is, you know, the glamorous America that you imagine it is. Um, it felt a lot more achievable based from on them. I don't know, and then... We went to go see Catatonia as well, weren't we, Rob? And that got cancelled because <laughs> they broke up before <laughs> it happened. That's going to be like our first gig. Um, so there was loads going on that sort of bigger scene. And I think when we started gigging, influence of bands like Funeral Friend, I think they did have a sort of influence because you can't help but play with bands like that at the time. It was the scene we were sort of steeped in, really. I mean, being in Cowbridge, we were a bit out on a limb anyway. Um, so Cardiff's like half an hour away. But if you can't drive, it might as well be in Scotland. Uh, so um, get, getting to see 
uh, other bands play and or, or kind of being parts of parts of a scene or something was was quite um was quite tricky um so we, we yeah we were to some extent on our own a little bit but it was yeah as you and said i think seeing other bands locally doing it and kind of meeting them at, at, at gigs now and then and, and knowing that they were just normal people having a crack and succeeding was was really inspirational and i think it's something you need to see to for it to hit home that it's not um uh, a pipe dream necessarily it's a little bit of a pipe dream but <laughs> i think i think what's cool about wales is um so you talk about the manics but then you'd see james dean bradfield shopping in the middle of cardiff and you could go up and chat with him and he'd just be a really sound guy. He says, like, there used to be a really big music shop in the centre called Cranes. I think we were there that time. We were there, weren't we, together? And yeah. He was there, like, yeah, buying a guitar. We annoyed him more than once, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, pacing <laughs> after him at the shop, like, oh, this would say great. Probably done that quite a few times, even while we were in the band and doing well ourselves. <laughs> just, <laughs> still <stuck. laughs> um, so I think that definitely has that. They're not this kind of untouchable, elevated force. You could just see people in the street and chat with them and everyone's pretty down to earth i think in that sense yeah i don't think anyone we met was really aloof um i think all of them had time uh had the time of day for us um yeah. which think, which was really nice yeah because we, like, we bumped into Stuart cable um from stereophonics quite early on and just said to him, oh, we, we were playing a gig in the bar flying Cardiff that evening. Just like, oh, do you want to come? I mean, you know, you'd pay lip service, wouldn't you normally? He'd just say, yeah, I'll be there. But, and, but he did show up and that was really cool. And he was just like, obviously there for the, the crack, I think. But <laughs> yeah, he did come and then he... Caught him at a loose end. So yeah, that was fun. He had a good time. So it's just, it does have a big impact on you as, a, as your musicians. He gave, you, he gave you a positive review afterwards today. Yeah, I think, he, I think he was positive about everything, wasn't he? So, yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was an upbeat guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, guys, for us, you know, um, for us who don't know, can, give us a feel for what Cowbridge is like, and then um, when you did get to, uh, say, the bar fly at Cardiff, how that was the contrast, and you know that that journey from, I guess, what is a fairly quiet town in Cowbridge to mm. a place in Cardiff where there's a lot more going on. Yeah, it's, it's a small market town, really. So there aren't there aren't any of what you'd think of as rock venues at all there's pubs where you'd get covers bands playing and that kind of thing but that that was it like literally we would have had to go to the next town to do gigs or to see gigs um that weren't pink floyd covers bands um <laughs> so uh getting get to Cardiff was really important i think the, the the opportunities there were um absolutely fantastic so the yeah the, the, the bar flies a significant one for a number of reasons but um i think the, the first of which is they they did these, this series of shows called um, Teen Spirit, where they would let under 18s bands play. Because um, normally you're not even allowed in the building if you're under 18. So <laughs> to be able to cut your teeth on a, on a proper stage, albeit a small and sticky one, uh, <laughs> was absolutely fantastic. And it makes all the difference. Um, and just to, to go from practicing in a, a youth club to, to standing on a stage and having blinding lights in your face and, and people in front of you and feeling what it's like was, was a hugely um, important step. I think a seminal moment, really. Um, but yeah, as I said, like Cow- Cowbridge is a small market town and simply wasn't big enough to support that. So it was a question of getting out into the wider world, really. Yeah. It's not like, tip- I wouldn't say Cowbridge is like typical of Wales, is it? And no. It's not particularly representative. <laughs> it's really very... <laughs> Um, it's, it's a brilliant place to grow up and everything. It's like, it's, but it's like you know, very middle class. Lots of um, you know, there's wealth, lots of landowners and stuff, and it's yeah, kind of got of that, that 
um you know it's very it's different isn't it people who i mean we put on we did do a gig there when we kind of gained some success kind of a bit of like a homecoming coming gig in the um the leisure center and i remember just the promoter for that gig coming down because he was from mountain ash up in the valleys and just being like what is this place <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily what representative i think of wales in terms of just how it is it's a bit different isn't it Oh, completely. People used to ask us in interviews, like, oh, so you're from the valleys? And you're like, no, emphatically not. <laughs> We've got no claim on that at all. <laughs> yeah. Not in any kind of negative way, really, is it? It's just no. very different. It's just a completely different thing, even though it's about 10 minutes away from what Wales really is, I'd say. So just, just to, to talk about the journey of the band then. So we know your first single, Recover, came out in, in late 2005. So what was the, the, the key steps then along, along that road from coming from Cowbridge to playing those gigs in Cardiff? And then, then what were the steps after there to, to then start releasing your music? Um, getting, getting a manager was the, uh, probably the, the most significant step on the road, I think. That's what kicked it all off. Um, <laughs> So we recorded a, uh, a demo. Was was that in Mountain Ash that we did that? Uh, uh, my Steg. My so Steg, that's it. Yeah. Route, <laughs> yeah. Um, we recorded a three-track demo and, and, and sent it to everyone we could get an address for, basically, who had anything to do with music. And um, of the, I, I can't remember anyone, if anyone else replied, but um, uh, Martin, our old manager, uh, replied and said, yeah, I'd like, to, like you to come and use my studio and, and practice and and." and learn your craft so then we had a place to practice in Cardiff and someone with connections in the uh, industry it was it was uh, we took we took a gap year and it was a year of uh, going to that studio pretty much how often like uh, as often as we could at least once a week yeah it was probably about three times a week we were just going in because we were also working weren't we yeah Uh, we all had jobs part-time jobs the kind of jobs you can get after school so (laughs) we recorded the demo we were in sick form still, weren't we? It was kind of just like cobbled together. Yeah. A hundred quid between us to go down and record. Yeah, I'm not even sure all the songs had lyrics, did they? <laughs> <laughs> we were still still writing them as we were recording, which is pretty much true of right to the end, really. Yeah. <laughs> that never changed. Art is uh, never finished. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I think getting management or just some kind of representation in Cardiff was really important to just he was able to maybe we were able to start getting some more support slots for touring bands and we were kind of the local support for a lot of acts um i think gonzo the mtv gonzo tour came through with like kaiser chiefs and stuff like and because of that we we didn't get to play it or anything but we were given um jobs as like the local roadies carrying everything around it just gave us that it just it's better a bit of an introduction to the business i suppose and to understand where it was going what we wanted in that gap year so. yeah hell of, hell of a gap year wasn't it because uh, yeah <laughs> so uh, yeah Re- recover, recover came in around 2005 didn't it and then um raul came next you know great track um but we have to talk about the third single uh, monster you know really did take on a whole life of his own didn't it give us a bit of a, an insight into how that song came about um very haphazardly <laughs> <laughs> um it, it was not something we knew was going to be a huge single and it wasn't even the song we were most excited about writing at the time i don't think a lot of the parts that made it to the actual single we thought oh they'll just do as a placeholder like the actual chorus lyrics which shows you how green we were and how little we knew about what we had we don't want to change that down the line i've, I've since learned you never you never change placeholders <laughs> if you don't do it then it'll just stick <laughs> yeah. it was literally we'd been to see 
um, like Electric Six and Jar Crew. Who have you have you had Jar Crew? So like they were sort of had their moment, I think, just before we did. Yeah, um, we'd seen them playing Barfly the night before, and it was kind of like this. Really, it was like a really fun night, of like upbeat, heavy disco. And we were like, let's just go and write a song like that. That's just kind of a bit more upbeat and fun, because we hadn't really tried that before then, I don't think. And no. just kind of came together in a day, and had the chorus, which is, yeah, just like oh, I think Penny was mucking around for some reason. We were joking about like something like Jack and Nori or something weird, yeah, nursery like, rhyme type lyrics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we were just like, oh, let's just put that on, and it stuck. <laughs> um, and then it, it was. We weren't signed at that point. That was kind of in sort of heart midway through the year, say probably springtime, possibly. That, yeah, it was 2005, it must have been. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it was the song that kicked everything off, though, because as much as we didn't know what we had, our manager did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We played it to him, and his eyes just went wise, and um, he got us into a, a studio to record a quick snap. Um, yeah. And then it got sent, sent out to a record label. Sorry, you didn't no, sorry, I was saying we just like did a two-track demo. I think it was that and By My Side, possibly. Yeah, so it was like the polar opposite type of song that we probably had on that album and just sent it off everywhere. And one person came to a gig. One person <laughs> came to a gig? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was the eye, through the eye of a needle we got signed to. <laughs> yeah, 20 people say they'll come out from London and uh, 19 of them are tired on the night. And yeah. <laughs> And and the, the guy who signed us, Paul Harris from 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 Be Unique, almost didn't come himself. He said he was halfway up the M4, and I think he'd had a, a crap day and was knackered. And uh, put put the demo on again and said, "No, I will go and see them." Um, so you know, yeah. if if he'd had half an hour's less sleep the night before, it might not have happened. <laughs> it's probably when he came to that gig was when all those sort of Teen Spirit nights in Barfly paid off because we built up a following then locally. I think if we'd gone to London to play. To try and attract attention probably wouldn't have had the same impact as us having like a supportive crowd who are really into it and you could sort of maybe see how good we could be live I imagine like when the crowd were responsive and enjoying it and we had like obviously a lot of friends there didn't we yeah, um, yeah. yeah it was really significant yeah without monster really none of it would have happened at all in terms of the success there even just getting signed I think would have taken a lot longer yeah, and we wouldn't have been in the same form, really. Monster sort of um, created something of a mould for us, although it's fairly atypical of, of what we did in lots of respects. Um, it, it cast us as a certain kind of band, I think. Um, so, yeah, we, we might have gone... We probably would have tried to go down a, a slightly heavier, rockier route had we just carried on going and not written Monster in the meantime, I think. Um so yeah, it's it shaped <laughs> shaped our lives. <laughs> yeah. And what's this story about you uh, you hearing people singing it before it was even released? That, that sounds uh, sounds incredible. It was like it was on radio, wasn't it? It was kind of it was out there, but it hadn't it wasn't out to purchase. And we were playing T four on the beach uh, in Western Supermare. Really hot. It was the middle of the summer because it came out in June, and like all the windows were open in the hotel. I was like, oh, we had to have an early early night. Early for them because <laughs> uh, we had to get down like the M5 to Western for the gig. Um, so we're in bed and the windows are open. You just hear all the clubs checking out and then people singing it, and it's it's a really bizarre, odd thing because I think you said it before, Rob. It's just that recognition. You don't recognise it immediately. It's like you know it's familiar, but you don't know why. 
it's so it just takes when it's out of context you just it's really sort of surprising yeah then it, it was, was shocking cool. really yeah just, just to hear a lone drunk voice in the night singing <laughs> <Yeah. Monster. laughs> that wasn't my lone drunk voice <laughs> yeah. um yeah uh, that's that's when we realized this is doing things <laughs> this has entered the public consciousness and it wasn't just people in clubs and gigs singing it either, was it? It transferred to the football terraces too. I know Cardiff fans used to sing about Michael Chopra, didn't they? QPR, oh, yes. QPR and Tottenham fans sung about Chimbonda. I think Newcastle fans might have sung it about Sissoko. Certainly Man United fans sung it about Ronaldo. It's just like every club then <laughs> adapts it, took it and adapted it oh, for yeah. the player, didn't they? My, uh, my dad's a, a Watford fan. I went to see Watford versus Cardiff with him and Watford lost, predictably. And um, they, so we had the Cardiff fans singing my song. <laughs> <laughs> singing our song over at us I thought well this is irony isn't it <laughs> amazing Cause didn't you um, did you get to meet Michael Chopper at some point as well uh, yeah we got invited down to the old uh, Ninian Park um, to do the crossbar challenge oh yeah, yeah. Um, which failed us <laughs> yeah it was a lot further away when there were lots of people watching you and you're not very good at football in the first place but um yeah i think at sort of half time we got to meet his family and there was like a brief kind of just how you doing yeah and whilst we do it I mean, they, they invited us to the fa cup final that time as well didn't they so we got to go yeah. down to wembley to watch the match against portsmouth that was fun which was it was a fun day out it was yeah despite the score but it was good. <laughs> what do you think? So what you... do you think the uh, sorry, Rich? What, what do you think the secret is, uh, guys, about why it, it proved so catchy in in all these different places? I think it comes down to that sort of nursery rhyme thing we were talking about. In some ways, is really simple. It's a very basic idea, and just what's that coming? In? It's just got a kind of very sing songy. We were joking around when we were joking about it. It was that kind of sing songy rhyme type thing, wasn't it? I think yeah. it's just quite a fundamentally basic <laughs> tune yeah, like in just, that kind of nursery rhyme sense and it's just it's, really it's succinct that. it's easy to remember i think basically once you've heard the first chorus you'll be singing along with the second one um it's a very low bar to entry isn't it <laughs> <laughs> um but you know it's, it's one of the things com- complex ideas just don't spread through people's imagination in the same way as the simple ones i think and that's 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 all it was simple yeah. and effective and i think it's the, yeah, like you're talking about the flexibility of it being people can just sort of put in their own words, their own meanings to it. It's kind of got that. It's really easy to do that. Like any two syllable word, you just <laughs> it in pretty much. And I mean, sometimes you go on something like Instagram or Twitter and you search like the hashtag, what's that coming over the hill? And just the variety of different things there's lots of dog walking videos lots of dogs <laughs> so mostly dogs coming over there yeah <laughs> it's just um yeah i think it's really easy to just put your own spin on it i think yeah. that makes it that much more uh, personal to people in that sense they all like talk about that because we also got we always got spoken to didn't we about oh my kid loves that song my kid yeah. um we did the kerrang awards well we were invited to them I remember being um, talking to uh, Liam Howlett from The Prodigy, and he was just like, "Oh yeah, my four-year-old sings sings our your song in the car on the way to school." And I was like, oh, "That's really cool." <laughs> like, not what you expect to be talking to Liam Howlett about, but it was still pretty fun. <laughs> we, we definitely did. ended up uh, 
we ended up with a dad contingent at gigs because of that. Uh, it was quite a common occurrence that you get some kind of middle-aged bloke like, oh, I only came along because my kid likes your song and it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> now I like it. Yeah, expanded the uh, fan base. <laughs> yeah, I don't really think that sort of sense of fun of it that people had just really enjoyed, you know, making it their own and creating, as you say, different different fun replacements for the chorus. It was, uh, yeah, really, really, really interesting time for that song. And obviously it really just propelled you, didn't it? Right into the mainstream. You know, the song was everywhere. It got to number four in the charts and you then you know had a, a quick turnaround to try and you know get the album written and out so what are your memories of of that time of being propelled into the mainstream and then you know getting down to doing the album <laughs> i don't i don't remember the album being particularly hard to write but i, I i'm pretty sure we hadn't finished it when we went to the studio <laughs> no we had a, a week of pre-production with steve harris who's the producer so he came to our uh, rehearsal space in Cardiff and I remember us playing the songs that we had to him that were clearly not finished <laughs> and we were what we were about 18 slash 19 19 yeah um so we, he had that kind of um sort of that demeanor of a quite disappointed teacher <laughs> oh boys you can do better than this <laughs> I remember being there and he's like I'm going to a cafe when I come back these are all gonna be finished aren't they and then it was finished. <laughs> but it was really was weird. it that quick? I sort of remembered him coming back, but maybe it was that quick. Yeah, it was pretty, yeah, because it was. I think we were always been quite good at filling, working to the deadline. So yeah. if there's no deadline, we're never going to finish. So that's, that's true. And saying it needs to be, you need. I think maybe it wasn't all the songs, but it was at least a couple. He'd be like, I want to hear two finished songs by the time I come back. <laughs> and then we can start working on them. And then that's pretty much what happened. Because then we spent the rest of the week sort of then working with him about how to improve or finesse stuff before going in to record properly. So, yeah, it was kind of... I don't, it, didn't feel, we were, it didn't feel like the kind of first album where everyone says first album's the easiest because you've been writing it all your lives. And it's it felt like we were still writing it, come to, came to record it. And maybe that's just because we were sort of pretty young like relative to maybe some other bands who were doing their first proper album. Yeah, I think so. I think we, we were learning our craft as well. Like the number we'd, we'd been in very few studios before then and hadn't been through the sort of pre-production process that you go through with a producer. And um, it, it was things like, really, I was still learning to sing at that point. And we hadn't done many gigs. Um, didn't know anything about this sort of technical side of recording. Uh, so, so all of that was new to us. And by the time we got into studios for, for later on it was all much more familiar there was a world of difference between uh, what we were like on the first record and the second in in, in those terms although uh, it wasn't as if the second record was easy all around um, <laughs> i think yeah we were much more competent at that and knew how to craft songs i think um it being one percent inspiration and 99 percent perspiration is true i think you, have, you learn to have to be kind of savage with songs and, and and say this this works this doesn't work and chop it out and 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 and, and drop your ego just because you wrote a bit doesn't mean it's going to end up in the song <laughs> doesn't mean it's any good <laughs> yeah and i guess also the sort of the rapid success of the band as well didn't really give you much time to sort of as you say stop and so maybe hone that studio craft and you mentioned T4 on the beach there, but you were playing all sorts of festivals very quickly, weren't you? And I remember a, a great cover of Gold Digger at one of them. And uh, yeah. Rob, you're on the flute, weren't you? Bringing out the I old was. flute. This is a bit different. Yeah. Busting <laughs> out the classical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that was just, that, that was it, wasn't it? It was just 100 miles an hour. And as you say, 
this, this crazy world and you're uh, pulling out the flute and playing gold digger on these stages in front of thousands of fans. It must have been such a shock for, for you, you guys. And as Rich said earlier, propelled into this, into this new world. Uh, yeah, to, to some extent, it's a shock. And at the same time, I think just because of uh, teenage overconfidence, we just took it in stride. <laughs> I think we always wanted it. And we kind of, as much as it was amazing to, uh, to be achieving that stuff, um, I don't think we necessarily realised how lucky we are. <laughs> um, yeah. no, I, I was about to say, like, it's that we never had to struggle in that sense that um, we didn't realise that what, the speed with which we got through the whole getting a deal process, putting an album out is really unusual. And I think we didn't really know that this isn't the norm. This is kind of quite uniquely fast and speedy. So we just, I think we did take it in our strides. We just thought, well, this is what it's like. Then (laughs) you record a demo, then you're playing to thousands of people within a year. It's just, it's not. And I think maybe it'd be, would have been nice to have a bit more time to just sort of, spend that time to maybe become slightly more mature in ourselves or very naive and young so yeah I I don't think I felt like a grown-up till I was about 25 and by that point the band was done (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah certainly no time to get your your heads around uh around it all and before you knew it you know the debut album not accepted anywhere was you know number three in the charts it was it stayed in the charts for you know over six months or so um, but when the album came out, you know there, there were some some critics with you know split opinions. You know, for, that some focused on Penny's vocals, and then he ended up leaving the band in September two thousand and seven. So, um, tell us a bit about about how all that came about. Yeah, so the, the, there's a the, the core the core members of the band are me, Ewan, and, and James Frost on guitar, and that's always been the case. And we we've had different fourth members kind of along the way. And I, I think the three of us are really really tight. And so it probably makes it quite hard for a fourth member. But Penny Penny joined relatively soon before we started getting before we got signed, or well, a bit before we got a manager. Um, and I think what he wanted from the band was something other than the direction we were taking. So we were, we were getting pop success really, um, and he was reading lots of books about the punk scene in LA and things that are just the opposite from what we were doing (laughs) as far removed in the world of music as you can get pretty much. Um, And, and it, it was quite quickly dissatisfied with a lot of what was going on. And um, we, we were having to deal with that as well because um, it had been our dream for a long, long time. Um, And here he was kind of saying, this is, this is not what I want. This is, this is, um, and getting, getting upset in our faces and, uh, generally feeling like he'd rather be moving in a different direction. So from really quite early on, he was quite dissatisfied actually, which made things pretty difficult. So I think the writing was on the wall quite early that if, uh, unless we could find a resolution to that, he wasn't going to be able to stay with the band. I think maybe it's this lockdown thing. It's just kind of, galvanized us a bit more again for the first time in quite a long time we've been sort of just looking back through photos reflecting on mm. what happened then <laughs> and you can see like in just in our first studio session so we recorded the first album in two places we recorded like half in stir studios in cardiff which is the manic what well, was the manic studio i think it's gone now it's been redeveloped and then the other half was in um chapel studios in lincolnshire so we're all quite and the lincolnshire one was particularly isolated so we're all up there no phone signal, 
and yeah. that this is like yeah 2005 so even you know it was you've really cut off back then like wi-fi and all that stuff just wasn't what it is today um and i think from then he wasn't entirely happy was he? it was kind of it was no. that the production the way we were taking the album because monster is a pop song regardless of whatever it's a pop rock song but pop probably being the operative <laughs> what it is and like rob was saying he's sort of um getting into like fugazi black flag like oh cool good bands and stuff but clearly that's not what we were or we're probably ever going to be we already yeah. had a major record label we know we were never going to be struggling sleeping on the couch, you know sofa surf, couch surfing and breaking well we did break down in the van a few times but we to sort it out ourselves um and i just think didn't really sit well with him it's like his ideology changed in a way yeah. that didn't and i think that's probably another thing of being so young because i'm when you majority of people go to university i don't know how many of your friends from school you really stay closely aligned with in terms of what you who you are you kind of move away and you change separately and you find your own niche don't you and i think we were yeah. all um, I mean, it's not stuck here. Yeah, anyone could leave whenever they want, but we were stuck together, changing, finding who we were, and we were all sort of. One of us found that he, you know, Penny found that he was probably someone else who wanted different things, and it happened very early on, which made it very difficult for that first probably two years of touring with someone who didn't want to be there. And yeah, those frustrations come out and. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he started isolating himself from early on, like talking about Chapel Studios, um, which is a really interesting place. Actually, it's got like a, it's like an old church with a graveyard out the back. So it's quite spooky, and it's in the middle of Lincoln, where yeah. the, which contains the emptiest ordnance survey map uh, square on the map. <laughs> <laughs> so bugger all and going on. Filth were next door as well, weren't they? They were, yeah. Very tan, Danny <laughs> Filth, which was quite funny. Really <laughs> dark place, <laughs> darkness. Um, yeah, but even even then, he was just sort of isolating himself in in in, in his room quite a lot. And just not engaging. And once that starts to happen, then you start to separate from people. Um, even down to when he recorded his parts, he'd be doing that separately. So we'd kind of, you get a bit of creative tension then because you don't know what one person's doing. And the other three guys might say, well, we don't, we don't like this. And so there, there was uh, a bit of frustration around that as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, I think we kind of, would have liked to have been a, a, a bit like Biffy Clyro or something. The record label wanted us to be like busted and really we would neither. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but he was just, yeah, not, not interested in anything on that scale. And he was much more interested in, in something very, very credible and possibly more low key. Um, uh, at least initially. So yeah, it was, it was a difficult thing to reconcile. And as you and points out, we, we're all kind of working out who we are. So there's a strange combination of, um, uh, an experience like none of our peers were having, but also a bit of a prolonged adolescence, <laughs> sure sure so obviously yeah it's, yeah it sounds like uh well yeah that's the story behind penny leaving but of course his departure was going to inevitably change the sound of the band a little bit as well because he had mm -hmm. such a you know those vocals particularly had such an influence on that sound of the first album so we'll just have a quick pause for a break there but next up we'll talk about the follow-up albums why the band eventually stopped and why Ewan was teasing us with a potential comeback tweet um in january <laughs> of this year <laughs> so we'll talk about that after the break Hi, I'm Rob from The Automatic, and you're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast.
You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. All right, welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast. Now, we pick up the automatic story with the band working on their second album. And without Penny's vocals, the sound of the automatic was about to change significantly. Uh, in came Paul Mullen from your code name is Milo. Um, so the second album was to be This Is A Fix. I know it went through a few different recording stages. So how was working on that second album compared to the first? I, th- I think we've matured a huge amount as musicians and songwriters. And we, we got the opportunity to try quite a lot of stuff, which was... Which was mm-hmm. um, fantastic that was definitely our purple patch for creativity uh so we, we were writing stuff like uh, steve mcqueen that was still fulfilling the sort of uh pop rock expectations of the record label but we got to have a go at some much more creative stuff as well mm-hmm. um but in terms of actually recording um that was uh, that was a lot more troubled <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to put it euphemistically um so we got sent to la by the record label to record, which uh, is not necessary to record an album. It might surprise you to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long were we there for? Like, I was trying to remember earlier how long we were there for. I think it's about, about two, two, months. Months, two months. Yeah, yeah. Six six weeks of that was recording with Don Gilmore, who was Linkin Park's producer, and this had been uh, sort of strongly suggested by someone at the label. Um, they thought it would make a lot of sense, but uh, Don's style was not gelling with our sound particularly well um working with him was okay like he's a nice nice guy and everything but um he's got a very clinical approach to making music which didn't really marry with some of the rough edge that that uh, our music has um and this it was kind of obviously a bit of a bumpy process from the record label's point of view and they heard some stuff and uh got rid of him <laughs> so, yeah it was, um yeah it was pretty lifeless wasn't it it was kind of yeah. very much you went in, recorded a song, and it was put through some kind of process that we weren't necessarily privy to. <laughs> She'd come back, and it would be different. Yeah. Um, things were put, chopped up through computers, and rebuilt almost. Um, we came in one morning, and think Frost found someone playing guitar parts. Um, <laughs> one of the engineers replaying some of his guitar parts to record them. <laughs> Oh, man, um, that. <laughs> it was a, it was a funny. I, I, we got on well with him, but there was lots of funny stuff going on with him, wasn't there? Because I think he was going through some stuff, so it meant that he had to leave the studio every day at six. He couldn't be home late or something because he'd get in trouble with yeah. someone at home. And there was a touch of meant, some kind of monster about all that. <laughs> yeah, just really odd, and it was a very corporate atmosphere. I found in that studio, it was kind of in. Um, so it's in Burbank in LA, so it's kind of just past all Hollywood and stuff, isn't it? And it's kind of yeah. this weird, non, nothing going on area of um, sort of studio buildings and just warehouses. And then you go in a room, you just be stuck there for the day. And, and then when you're recording an album, kind of, it's my experience as a drummer, really. drums kind of go down first. So once you're done you're done for quite a long time sometimes just sat around and there was nothing to do there apart from watch really poor american sports coverage of football and just play computer games but the atmosphere was really weird it was really stale and i think it came out in the recordings that first time didn't it just i, I think so flat and dead really it was really annoying but that so then, process as well it was it was yeah. treating it treated the recording as like a raw material that they'd then go and do stuff to 
um, and and that didn't work at all. Um, and it was in just hugely stark contrast to what happened next. Really. So, do you want to take that, you in or? Yeah. So then, I think Don got fired, and we had about two weeks of not knowing what to do. But we were in LA, so we got to hang out in LA for two weeks, just getting <laughs> all kinds of drunk. <laughs> that was quite fun. And then um, we got introduced to uh, Butch Walker, the producer. Um, and musician he's worked with loads of people like weezer and he's most famous yeah um and we just we meant to we just got taken to the studio in in the middle of la now and he was just much more let's just do stuff let's just try everything do what what do you want to do let's do it i think we're in this studio that was just like what you what you expect to see in a studio in la kind of just rough around the edges and just felt like a creative atmosphere and there's like, I think Motorhead had just been in there as well. It was kind of all kinds of like, I felt right because of where we were. There were lots of other people in LA at the same time then, weren't there? So I think um, mm-hmm. like Frank Turner was there and all these guys. So they were coming to the studio as well. And then it was just a lot more, This suddenly there was like a spark in everything. And it just came together. And in less than half the time, I think we'd recorded infinitely better sounding tracks. I think in two weeks, we knocked out five tracks that were the best not necessarily the best tracks, but the best sounding tracks on the album uh, that, that had the most life in them, for sure. Um, yeah. It was it was about capturing uh, an energy at the time, which worked much better for us. I think we we spent quite a lot of time. Um, I think we recognised that the uh, the kind of real deal with the automatic was live. That our live shows were the best way to see us, and we were trying to capture that on record. And that probably came closest, just getting the energy uh, to getting the energy on on. I was going to say on tape on hard drive. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and and yeah, uh, we really gelled with with um, with Butch Walker, and and would have done the whole thing with him had we not run out of time and budget, presumably as well. Um, yeah, just things, wasn't it? So like on Steve McQueen, there's like quite loads of like big chanty vocals and then so you've got like frank turner in la and we just we're like do you want to come and just join in so all these people just came in and just joined in on it. so it's not just one person doing it and then lay it up it is just like a big crowd of people shouting in a big room or you'd be in the room um, we were recording like magazines and in the middle bit it was like i remember being like i just wanted to try something on the drums where we like play everything the track really fast and then just fill it with like those drum fills and then play the drum fills at like half speed so they sound massive. And we, but she's just like, oh, let's just do it then. And we did it and it sounded awesome. And it's just that atmosphere where you could just be like, I just want to try this. And he'd be, rather than be like, mm, that's going to mess with what I want to, how easy it's going to be yeah. to fiddle with later. It was like, well, let's try it out. Let's just do it. And some, I think, yeah, some of our best ideas and best recording happened there, definitely. Absolutely. It's, it's weird because, well, yeah, we were in... Um the first studio with Don for six weeks, I think. And, and that feels like a tiny amount of time compared to the two weeks we spent with Butch Walker, which I think just says how inspiring and, and, and creatively fulfilling it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like you were saying about the spark of other, uh, other musicians coming in as well. So yeah, we had Frank, Frank Turner and, and Chris TT as well. who's a lot less well known, but I mentioned him because I think royalties mm-hmm. from him singing on Steve McQueen ended up paying for one of his albums. So there's just <laughs> cool things like that came out of it, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Cause Steve McQueen, uh, we released it in August, 2008 all over radio one, wasn't it? And, mm-hmm. um, we charted at 16, but it could have been a bit higher if it had a few more days. Oh, out we in the- robbed. <laughs> 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 
this is a crazy so this is one of these stories where you just think you know you guys have mentioned that, that not that you'd perhaps have much influence over when singles come out i don't know but you, you talk about a bit of naivety maybe or how how young you guys were when this stuff happened just tell us this story because yeah as you say you feel like you've been robbed out of a few chart places <laughs> with this one yeah, um, it's a classic story of how you can't fight the man. The <laughs> yeah. record company politics. So, in fact, it's something that we're dealing with at the moment because well, a lot of our stuff dis- disappeared from streaming services because of this very reason. So we were signed to Unique Records, who um, basically licensed distribution and mar- you know, sort of promotion through Universal. So we have um, our, our album has Polydor on it, but they were kind of more the distributor promoter. Um, Be Unique then got involved with Warner Music in some way or other. We're not sure whether they bought them or licensed, wrote, you know, signed a new license with them. Signed just before the second album came out, just before Steve McQueen came out. And then suddenly, obviously, Universal don't really want to be doing the work for a rival company. It's what it seems to us because we weren't really, we've never really been in a loop on what actually happened there. No. Um, so I think we were playing a gig in, we were doing festivals in Switzerland, possibly, the yeah. week it came out. And we were all in this, I think it already started off as a pretty shitty week because we'd missed the flight back from Switzerland or something. <laughs> I remember being people sleeping on an airport floor and checking yeah. whether it was online when it should have been. And it, it was not. It was not there, iTunes. And so it's kind of, it's before streaming was really a thing, but it was downloads were definitely had an impact and it just wasn't there. And it wasn't there till the Wednesday, I think, of the week. Even, I don't know if it was later. Should have been there from the Monday, but it definitely, we lost about half a week's sales on it. And we were totally on our own with sorting that out as well. Um, so it ended up me trying to contact someone at iTunes who'd been CC'd in on an email somewhere. And then they, out of the goodness of their heart, basically responded. And they were, they were quite diplomatic. They said, oh, yeah, a few problems at our end. But they said, well, also, it's your label. <laughs> they, you know, we, we couldn't get it on uh, without um, them do, taking certain actions. So, so that there was definitely at least a mistake at the label, that's being as charitable as possible. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it lost, it Monday, the Monday and Tuesday the, um, were then the biggest days for sales. I think it kind of eclipsed the rest of the week. Um, and so had we had those sales, uh, it could have been, it could have been a different story. I think it was quite, um, up until like the top three in that week, uh, it was quite tight as in terms of the positions as well. I think there weren't a lot of sales between them. So yeah. it, one can dream. <laughs> yeah. So those first two weeks, I think it's because they influenced that midweek chart. And then when people see then, oh, like in midweeks, you're doing quite well, it, sales get boosted again. Mm. So it's just never quite. God, it was fine margins, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't like yeah. there was 100,000 sales between each part chart position. You're talking within thousands, if not hundreds. Top 10 was definitely realistic with not yeah. that many more sales. Um, oh, yeah. So how frustrating. Yeah, yeah, I think from that, things just kind of crumbled a bit with the sort of relationship with the label, didn't it? it just, well, it wasn't even relationship. It just kind of, they disappeared. So yeah. promos were made up for the next single, which was going to be magazines. Um and just nothing happened. I don't really. It was just kind of, we're not doing this now. It yeah, it didn't it didn't even come out. So yeah. <laughs> it was just it was bizarre. And like promotion stopped. It was like 
there were like there's me billboards everywhere and then it was like hunt the billboards and we found this tiny one <laughs> down an alley somewhere in london we were like oh, there it is <laughs> it was rubbish but we were like it was one of the three <laughs> massive billboards that were promised <laughs> and there's a great deal of powerlessness as well because you, you can you can you can only make so many phone calls and send so many emails but if they don't reply there's nothing you can do yeah. i mean um, the label gave us a liaison um i can't remember her name but obviously someone who's there to artists to call just to be like oh what's going on but it felt like she was more of a just a barrier to stop us bothering so just tell them that we'd fob them off but it was a very horrible week a very angry week mm-hmm. uh, can't have been fun for her <laughs> <laughs> and, and still an issue now of course because that second album's not on not on spotify it's not on streaming yeah. services so, um, yeah we just we talking to paul harris weren't we this week who yeah. signed us initially because he's um he knows what's going on with that so basically i think it's because the license expired once that happened everything just got removed off tr- streaming so we just i think it sounds like it's a case of someone just uploading a few files and they'll yeah. be gone hopefully, hopefully yeah so. hopefully it's a, it's a checkbox somewhere and that's it and it's a formality <laughs> but yeah. un- until this box is checked then <laughs> hunt the missing album <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But your, your third one's on there. Uh, tear the signs down. That's uh, that's all out there for people to listen to. Um, so, how do you think the, the band had evolved by that point? You know, we know now that that was to be, you know, the last album for the bands. But you know, had the band sort of uh, evolved in, in terms of your songwriting? Had you honed your craft by that point? And did you feel that that was going to be, you know, your swan song? I think we we certainly knew by the time the recording was done that that was probably fly or die at that point. And it probably wasn't going to be fly. Um, <laughs> from from the beginning of, of this is a fix all the way through to then, uh, we had Paul Mullen on board, and he's just he's just a consummate musician. He's a great singer and and, and guitarist. And he can play keyboards as well. And so when we went into write, there were four of us all pulling in the same direction and trying things and being creative. So I I, I think really fondly on those songwriting sessions is just really enjoyable things for musicians to do. Um, so that that was all fantastic. I, I think we always felt a little bit of pressure to try and repeat the trick of monster, but we certainly weren't doing that on every track. And so we did do some really, uh, fun, creative stuff like race to the heart of the sun was pretty proggy. And, um, uh, yeah, then all through to just sort of quirky pop and, and it was enjoyable times, but in in terms of the record coming out, we knew we weren't going to be able to promote it much, um, (laughs) read at all. Um, uh, we had the money to record it and that was about it. Yeah, I don't think we didn't really expect to be recording it or writing it when we did. I'd, I'd say because we kind of anticipated, you know, another year or two with this as a fix. And I imagine most bands, you do that second album and you probably have a year off, or you just go off and yeah. experience some things. I think up to that point, we'd literally just been doing the band. And I think if I could do one thing differently, it would probably would have been to take more time to actually have some space to come back with maybe. I think we had ideas, but maybe we didn't necessarily have experience, like that kind of breadth of experience to maybe try more different things. We were trying to redo what we'd done in LA in Cardiff with 10% of the money. (laughs) (laughs) And just that kind of, I just wish we'd had a bit more time between things to sort it out, but we didn't have the time. I think it was definitely, we had, it would do, yeah, like Rob was saying, like flow or die, it was like, got to do it now or it's just never going to happen. If that's the regret, though, Ian, I mean, you said you've been talking about the band with uh, Rob and Frosty during this lockdown period, but overall, there must be fond memories now of, of, of those 
mm. of those years because you know i remember watching you guys at do you remember concord 2 the venue in brighton yeah, yeah, yeah. right I down the coast yeah. yeah that's so, my favorite so venue. Good, yeah. <laughs> is it brilliant yeah, yeah. well it came across like that on the night because uh, me and Rich, we were at Brighton Uni and you know, we would always be, be in there seeing various bands. And I know what you're going to say, I think. <laughs> oh, what <laughs> were you going to say? Was it the night where when we did the... On- it was absolutely boiling hot. It was June or July. And then uh, when we did the encore, we were only wearing our pants. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a memory I have had and carried for a little while. You know when you have memories from uni and you think yeah. that really actually happened, but... Yeah, because it's on because you're right down on the beach and it was steaming hot night um, night or evening and you got the sun coming through. And then eventually, you know, night falls and you have this crazy gig. And then, yeah, it was uh, all ended up very hot and sweaty, didn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is sexy times. And, um, and then we ran into the sea at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because we've been to see this. Um, the the region sent to London to go and see this stylist the day before or on that day, and the reason we all had we he was like you've got to wear these boxer shorts. <laughs> he's like there's no he's like there's no point wearing any other kind of underwear. Every man should have a basic pair of white baggy boxers. Yeah. And we were like crisp white boxers. We were like, this is very strange. So we just all had massive white boxer shorts. So it was like let's do the encore. Which, which we were never going to wear again. <laughs> it's part, let's just do the encore in the giant boxer shorts. It was really weird. He was insistent. He, <laughs> he was. It was really even at the time. Like he, he came really highly recommended from the label, I think. And the, the, then even at the time, we knew he was just full of shit. We just <laughs> what, what the hell is happening? He's trying to get us to wear like fox hunting blazers for photo shoots and things. It was just really bizarre. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That I enjoyed I, I, the Concord. Such a good venue. Yeah, just, yeah. I, mean, I don't know. We always, we always had a good gig in Brighton. Those little six. venues, I think, just lend themselves to bands like yourselves who, you know, have a good connection with the crowd and, you know, bring the energy. And, mm. you know, the, 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 when you've got that connection between the two, if you've got a nice tight venue like that, I think it's a recipe for success most of the time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. We played there. Uh, 700 people, I think. Yeah. I think the first time we did it was supporting Hard Fight, wasn't it? Yeah. Remember that. Yeah, that was fun. Did enjoy that. So, guys, you know, uh, you and I mentioned your tweet uh, earlier yeah. in the podcast. What are the chances of getting the boxer shorts back out again? And uh, <laughs> forget yeah, the boxer they're shorts; they're gone. They're dead. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're mixed feelings, really. Yeah, it's, I think it's something I'd like to do, and like, but in the right way. I I want to do it personally because I want to be just because it's quite a fun thing to do. Generally, it's out of just the sheer fun of playing a gig, and people just getting involved wouldn't do it as any kind of this is a comeback this is a the here's the next album here's um you know it would be let's do some shows because it's really fun to do some shows and why shouldn't we just go and do some shows playing live was always peak automatic i think and it's, it's a singular joy there's nothing quite like it you give the audience a little bit of energy they give you a little bit more back and that snowballs over the course of a gig um and there's just there's no feeling like it um uh, I, I love singing in front of crowds and I've had very little of that in the last 10 years, um, you know, sort of drunken nights outside. <laughs> so yeah. it would be really nice to, to to be able to get back on stage and do a bit more of that. I think as the way music's consumed has changed and everyone's streaming as a band, we get um, like you get emailed like analytics and stuff from Apple Music and you see or you go on Spotify, and you see how many people are listening to it. Like, oh, another 10,000 people have listened to our music. And it just seems a bit wild, unreal. <laughs> so it's kind of like, 
be there, just wanted to see see what that looks like almost. Do a gig and just be like, oh my god, yeah, there's still mm. some people who are into this, <laughs> which would just be really fun. But obviously, it's about just convincing people, people wanting to do it themselves as well. There's yeah, getting everyone pointed in the right direction. Yeah, I yeah, mean, next like... year's 15 years since Monster, and it maybe be a shame to let that pass without something happening. Yeah, because then we have to wait for 20 years. Miss out to wait 25, <laughs> and eventually we're doing a Rolling Stones and playing the 50th anniversary. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, it'd be nice. I've got to too do... many grey hairs now. I want to do it soon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, 15 years seems like a perfect reunion, so uh, let's, let's hope you can make it happen, guys. Um, yeah, we're just going to finish up with, uh, with the encore before we go, if that's all right, chaps. We, um, three quick fire ones to, before we get on out of here. We talked earlier about the, uh, the Welsh influences in terms of the bands that made it seem much more achievable for what you set out. So can you it, both maybe choose, choose one each, uh, choose the best Welsh band ever? I'm tempted just to say no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my initial response my gut feeling is just say Max but then I think Super Fairy Animals actually in terms of a band I go back to and still listen to even though they're not around anymore they're still really just fun and creative and I think they capture something about Welsh music that a lot of other bands don't necessarily they're not they've got like Griff Reese is pretty much genius so yeah I'll go with possibly Griff Reese actually then and the Super Free Animals leading on to Griff Reese, for me. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say the Manics, so I was going to have the Furries. <laughs> yeah. By the yeah. way, I was like, it could be the Manics. It's hard, isn't it? Between those yeah, two. yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, I, I might just be really obscure then on purpose, because as much as the Furries are amazing, um, I think there were bands that influenced me more directly at certain times. Um, so I'm going to be really left field and say people in planes who just haven't done anything for a long time, but um, were really something something else from the Cardiff scene there was nothing quite like them before or after um mm-hmm. they were quite jazz influenced I think so really technically accomplished musicians um but they never quite hit the big time um but I mean it's, it's picking any one does a disservice to the rest really because yeah, we were really into Jar Crew and Future of the <laughs> Left and um all those bands and they probably had more direct influences on our sound than <laughs> like the Manix did so <laughs> yeah that's true Okay, second question in the encore, guys. What's the best gig that you did? <laughs> we covered this. Can <laughs> <laughs> we take that off and move on? <laughs> I loved that Concord 2 gig. I'm so pleased you brought it up. Independently. <laughs> yeah. I think that whole tour was really fun, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah. You, know the, you know, the shame about it is, um, and that, that sort of era, you know, I don't have photos of that on my phone. I don't have photos of that on my Facebook. You know, there must be, there's probably a digital camera at my mum and dad's house or something that I could go through and dig out some snaps. But <laughs> yeah. you, you just don't, you know, it's almost like sort of these hazy sort of memories of those days because, yeah, you don't just have it popping up on your timeline every every now and again with a bit of a time hop. Oh, do you remember you went to this gig five years ago? It's, uh, yeah, it just feels like a, like a different time sort of. Yeah, we've been doing that, like encountered that, the last couple of weeks, we did an interview with um, the local paper, well, the, the South Wales Echo, Western Mail, and they were like, oh, have you got any photos from the time back then? And we were just all scrambling around. I had to like, <laughs> dig out this hard drive from the back of my garage, and it's got photos on it from some kind of crusty old camera phone. And they're abysmal. <laughs> it's really difficult to find anything, particularly anything you want anyone else to see. But 
yeah it is a shame isn't it i think all my photos stop around 2013 and then it's like in the mists of time (laughs) (laughs) all right last song then guys uh might be another tricky one for you but we want you to pick out the the song that you're most proudest of i'm gonna go with magazines off the second album i think that is probably as a song i think paul came in with the idea the basic idea and we just sort of jammed it out and wrote it and it it recorded really well and I think it's kind of the song that I feel me personally did everything that I wanted the band to do in a song it's kind of got this really good groove it's the same pretty much musically I think it's essentially the same all the way through yeah we build on it and just vary it and change in places and I just think it's a really effective song and I'm really proud of it and it's the one song I wish everyone had heard that they never got to hear well, that, once that box is checked on Spotify, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I was, I was, um, I was, I was going to say uh, Steve McQueen. I think just because it was robbed, <laughs> but it's also another kind of. Um, it, it was very uh, emblematic of another angle of what we were doing, really. So it, it was, it was a bit rocky, but still had a big, big hooky chorus, which was. Um, I think we were quite good at that, if I say so myself. So, it's, yeah, it's nice to, to have that represented by that song. I think if if that and magazines had had a fair crack of the whip, we might be having a very different conversation today, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, big choruses, big hooks. That's uh, what the band we're all about. And, guys, it's been great reminiscing with you today as well. Robin, you and thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, reflecting on those memories with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Cheers. Ugh, another pointless video call where nothing gets done. I think you're on mute, David. Uh, oh, sorry. What did I miss? IT just approved Miro for the whole company. Miro? That's the... Online whiteboard. For team collaboration. We can make these long video meetings so much shorter with Miro boards. We can share ideas, feedback, and updates on them whenever. Actually see what we're talking about. It's all online. Miro will make our flexible work setup so much easier, with one virtual space for our brainstorms, projects, presentations. Oh, that sounds kind of amazing. So I don't need to wake up for 6 a.m. calls with the London office anymore. Now you're getting it. Don't let time zones get in the way of your team working well together. See why 99% of the Fortune 100 trust Miro to get good work done from anywhere. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.